Hey, I'm Alok, the host of Build the Change, a brand new podcast from MacBlue about the people at the center of progress. Join us on a journey across the country as we uncover stories about the everyday folks working together to build something bigger than themselves. Real change. You'll hear from students in Appalachia advocating for LGBTQ-friendly books in their communities, healthcare workers providing telehealth abortions across the country, immigrant farm workers fighting for their safety in the blazing sun, and candidates in states with razor-thin margins. Listen to Build the Change now wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Welcome to Democracy-ish. I am your solo host today, Danielle Moody. Um, Waj is on a break, uh, a much-needed break, but I am very excited to be joined today by Rotimi Adioye, who is a Daily Beast opinion columnist. So shout out to the Daily Beast because myself, Waj, you, uh, the Daily Beast employs good people. Um, and is also the lead comms advisor for the ACLU's Voting Rights Project. Um, Rotimi, you have written a couple of pieces that have stood out to me. Um, and Wash and I have talked on, on this show. First, let's jump into the kind of <laughs> clown car of folks that are running for the Republican nomination behind the twice impeached, uh, twice indicted, um, you know, found guilty on defamation, um, former president of the United States. You wrote a piece on Tim Scott, who, let me just tell you, I have so many opinions uh, (laughs) and thoughts about Tim Scott, namely the faceless black man that is his uh, emblem for his, mm-hmm. for his campaign is his avatar, uh, for his campaign. But in your piece, um, that I want to tell folks the title of Tim Scott's vision for America isn't for black people in your piece, you know, you talk about, and, 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 and I think it was good to say, look, Senator Tim Scott did come from very humble beginnings. His story is in fact, um, one to be admired, but the way that he has decided to use his power, to use his uh, station as a, as a senator has been anything but um, helpful or uplifting or encouraging for black people. So, so talk to, talk to us about, about that, about that part being as how you know, Tim Scott is, you know, one of several, quote unquote, racial minorities in the Republican Party that are running for president in 2024. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Well, Danielle, thanks for having me on today. I'm looking forward to have a having a great conversation. You know, the reason why I wrote that article 
was because um, I watched uh, Tim Scott's announcement speech, and it was really interesting to me because, um, and you know, I actually will caveat say that was it was disappointing to me because he basically talked about how America was this country that was so great, and you know, part of me agrees. Like I think we have had moments in this country where we've done the right thing, but there are a lot of moments that we haven't done the right thing and we haven't stood up for marginalized communities. And his whole argument of running for president saying, you know, like he's had this life where he's really overcome obstacles and that means that there are no problems. And I think that is ridiculous to not acknowledge that there's still so many people that look just like him that don't have the opportunities to access a lot of the things that he now has as a senator, I think is really dangerous. And one of the main things I saw that really stood out to me as a problem with Tim Scott is that he, you know, when he was with Trump, uh, he was always talking about how there's this idea of black economic empowerment, that he wants to be the person to champion that. I remember the first time I saw that, I was like, wow, this is actually nice that someone's coming mm-hmm. out that's elected and talking about, um, you know, helping black business leaders and really empowering black people in the community that want to be economically empowered. I was all for that. But then when the program started, none of the things that he actually claimed the program would do actually happened. You know, he was talking about how him and Trump were going to target a lot of minority economic business uh, business owners and give them economic support. Mm-hmm. What happened is like barely any of the funding that was supposed to go to these economic, uh, to these uh, black business owners went to them. And a lot of folks didn't actually get the economic support that they wanted. So now what you have is you had a lot of people that thought that they were going to get economic support and get this business development from the government, from private entities, and and none of it reached them. And that's another example of how we're telling people that the government and the and private companies are really interested in furthering black businesses, but then nothing happened. And you're further, I think, eroding trust that's already at an all-time low among folks that are looking for help in that area. So that really, really disappointed me because now he's using it as his campaign platform that if he gets elected, he's going to, you know, continue this project that he's been working on. And I don't think he's going to be anywhere close to winning the nomination. Uh, but I think that, you know, um, if he really does hypothetically, and I don't know which multiverse that would happen in, but if he did get elected, <laughs> right. um, I, I, it would be very disappointing for the country if any program like that continued, because it didn't really help the people that need it the most, which were Black business owners. Yeah. And when I was reading your piece, I'm ju- I was just like, you know, and, and, and then you go on to talk about uh, Trump's, you know, egregious uh, tax relief. Uh, handout that he gave to, you know, that he gave to wealthy white families and wealthy white people um, while he was president. And that's something else that Tim Scott has, you know, has touted, right, as a a win. And, you know, when I think about it, it's like, for me, I'm like, what happened between the Tim Scott that is like growing up in this country that goes through all of these obstacles that sees your family right? Met with so many obstacles. And then you go and align yourself with a party that has made it harder for more Tim Scotts to actually arrive at these higher echelons of industry, right? Like their policies have literally made it so that it is harder for people to actually overcome. And I'm just curious, you know, do you think that 
it is you know, because this isn't just Tim Scott's story. It's Nikki Haley's story. It's Vivek mm-hmm. Ramaswamy's story, right? It's these um, people that are these these Republican people of color and black black folks and people of color who are just like, I did it, so you should be. I did it with such a uh, facing such adversity, so you should be able to do it. And even though I'm in a position to help, I just won't. Mm-hmm. I think it's this idea in this country that, um, you know, that um, if one person can do it, then everyone else can. And I think that ignores um, kind of serious inequalities that we're seeing across the country um, for folks that look like me and you that don't have the opportunity to reach those places. Um, I think one particular thing that uh, stuck out to me about Tim Scott when he says this is, you know, he'll acknowledge like Nikki Haley and all the other folks that are on stage with him. Um, But I think what has happened is a lot of the times they've become kind of puppets and spokespeople for Republicans in the Republican Party that don't want to acknowledge that there's inequality. So whether they realize it or not, and I hope they, you know, realize it is that they've essentially really hurt any opportunity for there to be progress that could be created around their election because they spent the whole time talking about how there are no problems, how everything's perfect. And, you know, if everything's perfect and every, and there are no problems and there's no inequality, then, you know, you're not going to get elected and help out marginalized communities or help people that look like you to help them, uh, you know, have a leg up and have a better shot at reaching the American dream. So it's a little frustrating seeing Tim Scott talk the way he does. You know, I, I don't know the guy. I don't know what's in his heart, but, you know, I can tell you what I've heard him say and the way he speaks. And that's someone I think that really is using their platform in such a dangerous way um, when there's really a you know huge opportunity that he could use to you know bring in so many people um, to kind of the you know American experiment and this democracy of conversation. You know? you know, and I think that in order to do that, right, in order to bring people into the conversation, you would have to acknowledge that America isn't perfect, like mm-hmm. you said, and the yeah. fact that you're going to tout that there is nothing wrong with America. Well, then what are you running for? Right. Exactly. Like, it, like, then then what are you running for? Because there is, there are things that are wrong. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think that it, it behooves us to actually air those out so that we can, instead of just talking about the problems, be able to move to a place of solutions. But if you're living on Earth, too, and mm-hmm. refuse to acknowledge that there is inequity and that that inequity is based on race, is based on class. Right. And that we should be creating policies to level the playing field. And you just choose to say, oh, no, well, I did it. Everybody else should be able to do that. I I just think it's a false narrative that he puts. It's a false narrative, one, that the Republican Party as a whole. But it's so disheartening when I hear black Republicans, when I hear Republicans of color, color, when I hear queer Republicans saying these things. And I'm just like, you are doing more harm, right, to these communities that you want to represent than your white counterparts, because, Mm -hmm. frankly, you should know better. And you clearly don't. Yeah, no, I agree 100% because I think the interesting thing about what you're saying is I think the story of America being a country that has many flaws but is striving to get better is such a great story because it represents how every human is. You know, like every individual, every person, me, you, we all have mistakes. We all have made mistakes in our life. But, you know, we're hopefully trying to be better people every day. We're trying to be better brothers, sisters, friends. And I think that's a story that so many people can relate to. And by not telling that story, 
to voters and not telling them the truth of our country, we're painting a fantasy that doesn't exist. Um, and I think that's very dangerous because it further allows us to pretend like the problems we have around us aren't big deals and they aren't problems at all. And we can continue to ignore them. And that puts so many marginalized people at risk. Well, speaking of dangers, um, let's talk about Ron DeSantis. Uh, and the, the other piece that you wrote, um, and this was before Ron DeSantis had announced, uh, his run at the presidency, but everything that you lay out in there, I was just so appreciative folks. It's entitled the Ron DeSantis campaign kicked off already in 1964. Um, and you know, I, I, I want you to just lay out essentially Ron DeSantis, right? needed someone to hate. He needed something to make him look like a big, strong man in comparison to Donald Trump. And he likes to believe, I think in his own mind, that he created this DeSantis doctrine, right? That everyone else is copycatting. But you say it's already been created. Please tell folks like, who the originator of the DeSantis quote unquote doctrine is. Mm -hmm. So I kind of want to say the reason why I ended up kind of happening upon this is I love reading, you know, history and kind of, I think it can inform a lot of times why things are happening now, if you look at the past. And with Ron DeSantis, it's what's really interesting is that his whole conversation in particular about how schools are indoctrinating people, uh, which is, Obviously not true. I think our teachers are doing the best job they can do, given the, the odds are stacked against them, um, is that it started with Barry Goldwater. And Barry Goldwater, for folks at home, was um, someone that ran for president in the 60s. I um, ended up losing very badly. But he started kind of this idea about the culture of conservatism, this culture um, of conservatism that he thinks that started the country and is an important part of America. And he thinks that liberals want to undo. And a big part of this was Barry Goldwater, before he ran for president, wrote a book called The Conscious of the Conservative, where he really lays out his political thesis and his political ideologies. And one of the big points he talks about is education and how schools have become this place when they're indoctrinating children. And, you know, that is exactly what Ron DeSantis says today, is that, you know, kids are being indoctrinated. Kids are being fed lies about the country and the world by liberals. And why I think that ideology is so dangerous is because our country is reverting back to old habits and very dangerous types of language that really hurt a lot of people back in the 60s and led to a lot of problems in our country. So, you know, I hate to see us go back, one. But two, I think it shows you that this is not new. It's not original. Ron DeSantis hasn't come up with any new ideas. He's simply just leaning back on what happened in the past because he has no substance of his own to lean on. And that just shows how inequipped one is to even win in the Republican field and stand out amongst all the other people in that mm -hmm. stage. And the two, it just shows how inequipped he is to actually be um, the president. From the New Yorker staff writer Vincent Cunningham, a keenly observed novel of a young black man searching for his place in the world amidst a moment of historic change. Great Expectations is about David's 18 months working for the senator's presidential campaign. 
Along the way, David meets a myriad of people who raise a set of questions, questions of history, art, race, religion, and fatherhood that force David to look at his own life anew and come to terms with his identity as a young black man and father in America. Inspired by the author's experiences working on Obama's 2008 presidential campaign, Cunningham uses a political campaign as his narrative backbone. Great Expectations will be one of the talked about novels of the year, Colin McCann. Great Expectations is available wherever books are sold. Hey, I'm Alok, the host of Build the Change, a brand new podcast from MacBlue about the people at the center of progress. Join us on a journey across the country as we uncover stories about the everyday folks working together to build something bigger than themselves. Real change. You'll hear from students in Appalachia advocating for LGBTQ-friendly books in their communities, healthcare workers providing telehealth abortions across the country, immigrant farm workers fighting for their safety in the blazing sun, and candidates in states with razor-thin margins. Listen to Build the Change now wherever you get your podcasts. You know, one of the things that you brought up too in this piece that I think is also worth lifting up is when Goldwater was going after the schools, um, you mentioned John Dewey, um, who is considered kind of like, I guess, the father of education, modern day education as we understand it in this country. And I want you to explain what John Dewey had to do in 1899 with his idea about American education, what wasn't working and what needed to shift and how we would then find ourselves in the 60s with Barry Goldwater and then now in 2023 with DeSantis. Mm -hmm, Definitely. So um, the way I think I'll explain John Dewey is this, you know, um, we all, if you went to public school or, you know, you had field trips, you had times in class where you'd sit with other kids that were like you or different than you, and you talk about what was going on in the classroom. You'd have discussions in classroom, and that was invented by Dewey. Um, and he's, you know, a pretty popular American philosopher. And the reason why he became so popular in education was because he realized that in a democracy, you want to bring up the next generation of people to be able to be strong critical thinkers and to be able to engage in discussions with their fellow citizens because if you don't engage in discussions with people and have conversations around how to create government what happens is instead of using our words a lot of times people will use their fists and weapons and you know we don't want a society that re- that kind of falls on violence to solve problems so do we found that you know you know through his work through research studies with different students and kids that the best way to, you know, make sure that um, we were creating future citizens of democracy was teaching them when they were young to kind of have class discussions, participate in, you know, group activities, go on field trips, learn about things that are kind of different from what you see around you, uh, you know, in your house or in your school. Um, and so what ended up happening over time is this became, you know, practically the model of education is adopted mm-hmm. in school districts across the country. Um, a lot of people found it was effective because it worked. 
Um, you know, kids are becoming smarter, kids are becoming more articulate, they were learning how to make arguments in the classroom. And what happened is a lot of these kids started um, when the 60s was happening is a lot of young people um, started joining the civil rights movement because they started questioning yep. what was happening in society. They started saying, why does someone that lives a couple hundreds of miles away from me in the same state, they can't sit at the same lunch counter that I can, they can't do the same things that I can do. So they started really questioning the tenets of what was happening um, in their democracy because it wasn't really a true democracy. We hadn't really become that real multiracial democracy. And so what happened is Barry Goldwater noticed that and started writing about that in his book that he wrote when he was, you know, um, thinking about running for president because he really thought that the education model that Dewey created was pushing people, was pushing us, it becoming towards more progressive society, was really making uh, the future uh, citizens that were really good critical thinkers. So that's really why um, Barry Goldwater um, took that position. And now when you see um, DeSantis, uh, take that. It's the same thing, you know, because what you've seen in the last couple of years, we had the first black president in 2008. You've seen a lot more kids, a lot more young people mm -hmm. um, really start to question things that they see in society that are not OK and really start to pressure their politicians and ask them to make better political decisions. And that's why Ron DeSantis wants to call everything woke, because it's just because our society and our country is changing for the better. Um, so for him, it's all comes down to education, like Barry Goldwater. And part of me is like, you know, it's kind of diabolical because they understand that um, they want to really target young people because mm -hmm. I think young people are very vulnerable and they're very open um, to new ideas. So him attacking young people, I think it just, it just shows kind of how, um, you know, uh, dangerous, I think, um, Ron DeSantis, uh, his, his doctrine is. And that's why I think your piece was important. And I think that it's important for us to be having these conversations and not just dismiss Ron DeSantis, right? Because this is something, this is an ideology that has proliferated our body politic on and off again for so many decades. And it is so dangerous because what we know to be true is that education, public education is necessary, right? For a uh, successful, economically successful, globally competitive country, right? If you, like when I look at what Rhonda said, I'm a former educator and folks who listen to the show know that. Um, I went to school and my master's degree is in education policy. And the reason why is because as I was going through school, I realized that without the ability to have taken AP classes, without the ability to have been in a public education environment, that really fostered critical thought, I would have never gone into the career that I had chosen, right? I would have never been on this path and I would have never been in a place to be asking questions about what does it actually look like to perfect this union, right? What does it look like to be a responsible citizen? And to be a responsible citizen is not just to keep your head down and only, you know, only speak when spoken to. Right. Like those days of kind of I'm training you to do this part of the cog in the machine are gone. Why? Because of the tax breaks that Republicans gave to corporations to send overseas to get cheaper labor. So those labor jobs are gone. So when I look at what Ron DeSantis is doing in his dumbing down, his purposeful dumbing down 
of the residents of Florida and how other people are copycatting. I'm just like, what do you think, Rotimi? What do you think is their, their end goal? Because America can't be competitive globally if our students don't know a damn thing, right? Mm-hmm. They can't be competitive when you're saying, oh, we're just going to do writing and arithmetic. Like this, I mean, literally, Republicans have said that recently, right? Mm-hmm. Like they look at these young kids walking out of schools in Florida, walking out of schools in Tennessee because they're demanding better, right? Whether it be from gun safety or climate change, they want better for their future than what's being presented to them. And their pushback is, we need to undereducate these kids and like ban thinking. So it's interesting when Ron DeSantis, I think, always says this because it's like America didn't become the best country in the world because we were learning just the basics. We became the best country in the world because we were thinking to the future. We were creating planes, cars, trains, things that people hadn't even thought of, you know, students in colleges were thinking about. And that wasn't because we were thinking of, we were learning the bare minimum. It was because we're thinking about a future that didn't even exist yet. And I think with Ron DeSantis and some of these Republicans, the ideology that they're hoping that gets instituted in our education is going to stop a lot of our kids from thinking about the future and creating a more advanced society. Because America doesn't say number one if we're just thinking about the past and we're sticking to the fundamentals. America becomes better when we're thinking about creating a brand new society because that's how we got here in the first place. Um, So I really don't know why they're doing this. Part of me thinks there's really no plan. It's mainly just about staying in power and it's just about winning an election. You know, I, I think that is the main thing. I think the people that are really interested in power when they run for office, they don't really have a plan. They just care about power. I mean, we saw that with Trump. Mm-hmm. There, was, there was really no substance. Um, it was just about being powerful and bragging and having this fake swagger and cockiness. Um, and I think, you know, that's what Ron DeSantis is focused on. It's just about winning. It's just about gaining power. It's about consolidating power for himself and people that are like him. Hey, I'm Alok, the host of Build the Change, a brand new podcast from Mac Blue about the people at the center of progress. Join us on a journey across the country as we uncover stories about the everyday folks working together to build something bigger than themselves. Real change. You'll hear from students in Appalachia advocating for LGBTQ-friendly books in their communities, healthcare workers providing telehealth abortions across the country, immigrant farm workers fighting for their safety in the blazing sun, and candidates in states with razor-thin margins. Listen to Build the Change now wherever you get your podcasts. You know, I, I I wonder, you know, your thoughts when you look at this clown car of Republican candidates. Um, and there are several, right? Ron DeSantis comes in right now polling under Trump, but Trump still beats him by double digits. Um, but that's just currently. We're we're a long way away. Um, how do you feel as an observer, as a as a writer, as somebody who is doing the work with the ACLU to bolster voting protections and rights. How do you feel about 
the 2024 election as we sit here right now? Well, it's, uh, I think every election is pivotal, and I think every election is the most important election uh, because it determines where the future uh, goes. Um, and I, you know, I'm, I'm concerned um, about the Republican field. I think that there um, a lot of folks like Ron DeSantis and a few others that um, tug at the worst parts of people. And I think sometimes when politicians tug at the worst parts of people and they tap into people's worst fears, about being excluded from a changing society, about being left out. Um, it can motivate people to make wrong decisions based on impulses. So that really concerns me because I think what they're doing is they're really pulling on some of the worst parts of people's emotions, this idea of being stuck in our tribes and stuck in our social enclaves. That concerns me. And I think on the other hand, I think Biden's done a great job as president. I think um, he has really stepped to the moment, but I think there is this kind of tough thing that happens is that not a lot of people, for whatever reason, can seem to, you know, kind of discern what's happening and the successes that he's done. Um, I think some of that is the nature of the policy that, you know, the, if you're going to put an infrastructure bill in place, you might not see that skyscraper. You might not see that, uh, new school. You might not see that uh, brand new bridge up until a couple years later. I think some of it's just like we have a uh, we have a media environment that's becoming very difficult to break through, um, and it's very tough to get your message to the people that you need to turn out. And I think as these elections become closer, it's going to depend on smaller groups of people to win. Um, so I think that's a difficulty that uh, Biden needs to kind of overcome. Um, and I think he's doing the best that he can. I really think he can do it because he's done it before. I mean, I think yeah. last election yeah. was a great example. I think um, it was a close election. But I think Biden made a very good argument to the American people that you don't want a leader that is going to sow so much fear and chaos in the country. And I think he came out and did a good job there. But I think, you know, every election is the most important election. Um, and so I think, I hope the American people make the right um, decision um, come 2024. But I think, you know, I think a lot of folks, um, that's folks like me and you and other organizers out there and people that really care about democracy and think they're equipped to go out and have these tough conversations need to go out and have them with their friends and family and make sure they uh, get to the polls come uh, the election. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. But, you know, I, I, I will say, just a closing thought, which is that, you know, I was praying, right, in so many ways and yelling into my microphone for the 2020 election in the midst of a pandemic before we had vaccines. People were out standing in lines for hours and history was made again in terms of turnout um, by young people, by black people, by people of color. Um, who did what they could do to ensure that Donald Trump would not return to the Oval Office. And, you know, while I agree that Biden has done so much, I think that the feelings of anxiety and despair, unfortunately, have not left a lot of people, right? Because what we realize is that just removing Donald Trump wasn't going to be enough, um, mm. that there was there was a lot more work to be done and that the cancer that he, you know, grew out of his administration just spread um, across this country. And I think that 
again, folks underestimated uh, what what happened. But but you're a hundred percent right that if we can begin talking, organizing, connecting with people now, um, then hopefully we will be in a better place come the come after the election. I don't even know what place that will be. I may need yeah. to be doing this from a secret bunker. <laughs> um, but Rotimi. Adioye, please tell people how they can follow you, connect to your writings and your work. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, yeah, thanks everyone for listening. Uh, I just, uh, my Twitter is at, at underscore um, Rotimi A, and that's on uh, Twitter and Instagram. And there I, you know, kind of share some of my thoughts that I have about what's going on in a lot of the articles and projects that I'm working on. So if you follow me there on Instagram and uh, Twitter, uh, you'll see a lot of it. Amazing. Folks, thank you for listening to Democracy-ish. I am Danielle Moody. Wajahat will be back next week, and hopefully we will be back next week if, in fact, we have a country left. Inshallah. <laughs>